Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. Through a series of interviews, we will learn about how to create a compounder, a sustainable company whose success builds upon itself by hearing about the real life experiences of public company leaders. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview public company senior executives by posing the exact kind of questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. By talking to people who operate within a wide variety of industries, we will dig into the holistic aspects of company building that you are not going to hear anywhere else. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jim Hallett, the former CEO and now executive chairman of Car Auction Services. Car is a 2.25 billion market cap company that operates within the wholesale auto remarketing industry. Specifically, Car operates more than 70 physical used car auction locations in the US and is a number two player behind Mannheim in that space. Jim is very well known in the used car auction industry and has built up a wealth of knowledge over his close to 30 years at Car. He joined the company back in 1993, then became CEO in 2009, and just this past April, stepped back to executive chairman. During his tenure, Jim has overseen the company's spinoff of IAA, which is now a $7.3 billion market cap company on its own. He also helped spearhead the company's aggressive initiatives to extend its digital offerings and add scale beyond cars' physical auction facilities. In this wide-ranging discussion, we covered Jim's thoughts on cars' very important pivot to digital that occurred in 2020, what has changed about the used car auction industry over the last three decades, why he thought it was the right time to pass the torch, maintaining the company's culture within a rapidly changing industry, and why Carr believes the model of the future is hybrid, both digital and physical. If you are at all interested in how incumbent companies defend their turf against digital upstarts, this was a great discussion. Before we start, just a few disclosures to note. First, Cove Street owns car stock, and most importantly, all of the music on this podcast was created and composed by our own Jeff Bronchick. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Car Auction Services Executive Chairman, Jim Hallett. As always, we will start the podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Let's go back to the spring of 2020. The COVID outbreak forced you to temporarily shut down your physical auctions and the company made the strategic decision to go all in on a digital strategy. 
for a company that was really well known for facilitating on-premise auctions where buyers could literally kick the tires, this was a significant strategy shift. Can you talk about why you made that decision and how you have been able to pivot over the last year or so? Ben, I would take you back a little bit further than COVID. Uh, you know, part of our strategy leading up to COVID in the previous few years was to go to a more digital model. And we'd been focused on trying to go in that direction. And then along comes COVID and COVID really shut us down. Um, we were unable to do business in many of our locations or restricted in doing business in other locations. And we're really focused on safety. We're focused on the safety of our employees. We're focused on the safety of our customers. As you know, we weren't allowed to social gather and we had to distance ourselves. And quite frankly, we couldn't run physical auctions. You could not have hundreds of dealers standing shoulder to shoulder in an auction lane uh, bidding on automobiles. And so we made the decision that we were going to just accelerate our digital journey that we'd started a couple of years previously. We uh, decided that what we'd planned to do over the course of the next maybe two to three years, we basically took care of that over the course of two or three weeks. We shut down for a two week period. We got all of our auctions equipped with the, um, with the technology and the resources that they needed to become digital. Um, and we started selling 100% digital. So it was kind of something that we were leading up to, uh, something that we were planning on going in that direction. And COVID just really accelerated in a manner in which we never thought possible. Um, it's amazing how much you can get done and things you, you can accomplish when your back's really against the wall. You mentioned safety there. And for anyone who's never been to a physical car auction, it's it's a it's crazy to, to hear, but there's actually a fair number of people who get injured every year in that process. So I'm curious that about the decision that even post you know the with the COVID shutdown that you've decided to stop running cars physically with the idea of protecting people, and you were willing to do that even if it meant you would lose share. So, I mean, I think that speaks to the culture of the company and what, and what you really care about, but I'd, I'd love to hear that thought process as well as like, you know, the, the safety versus market share uh, question there. Yeah, I've been a very outspoken critic of running automobiles through auction lanes, uh, something that's been on in my mind for a long time. You know, you mentioned, and I'll reinforce, there are a lot of serious accidents in our industry running cars through the lanes. Uh, in some cases, there's, serious uh, there's there's fatalities um you know and if i think back to one of the most horrific fatalities in our industry happened a few years ago now this didn't take place at our auction but it happened at one of our competitor auctions where five people were killed in one single incident and i just knew that this cannot continue um, somebody's going to step in here and legislate that we don't run cars through auctions or we're going to have to change the way we protect not only our customers, but our own employees. Um, and with me, it was a personal thing. Um, if I go back to my early days in the auction business in Ottawa, Canada, one of my childhood friends got run over by a vehicle in the auction lanes. 
Now, thank God he's lived and gone on to live a pretty normal life, but it's always stuck with me. And I continue to ask myself, why do we run 3,000 pounds of metal through an auction lane where there's hundreds of dealers standing shoulder to shoulder and one slip of an accelerator or an issue with a vehicle can cause five people to die. I mean, why do we do this? With the technology we have today, with the imaging and the, da and the data that we have today, um, I always felt there was no reason to run a vehicle through an auction. And um, with that said, COVID comes along and we don't run any cars through as a result of COVID. And what we learned from not running cars through is there's really wasn't any difference in the proceeds. We got at least equal to or higher than what we would get if we ran the car through an auction lane. So that was a bit of a myth that really wasn't, wasn't true. I mean, there's no reason to run a vehicle through. Now, with that said, uh, COVID, some people think it's over. Um, I don't believe it's over. Um, some people have continued to run vehicles in their auctions. Uh, my hope going forward is my hope is an industry that we could come together and that we would never run another car through an auction lane again in the future. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, so getting to this strategic shift that you've witnessed, and obviously it's been accelerated by COVID, but I can imagine if I'd been at the company for 15 years or 20 years, a lot of the change so fast could have been about, could have, could have been a bit shocking. So I'm wondering, you know, what you've learned about communicating with stakeholders and keeping people motivated that you, you know, has, has helped you navigate through this transformational change. Yeah. I think the key word that you mentioned there was communicate. And, you know, whenever there's massive change uh, or a transformation going on within a business or an organization, I think the key is to really communicate to all stakeholders. And in our case, first and foremost, it was communicating with our employees um, and helping them to clearly understand that this is not a knee jerk reaction, that this is a organized plan, st uh, strategic move, uh, and this is the way that we're going to go with the future of the business. We're committed to it um, and to get their buy-in and to get their support for what we're going to do. And I think the biggest thing is not just what we're going to do, but why, why we're doing this and why it makes sense as part of our strategy. On the customer side, same deal. Get out in front of your customers, uh, be transparent, tell them what you're planning on doing, tell them what the uh, course of action will be, um, and help them understand the why. And I can tell you in our case, we had many uh, employee meetings, we had a number of town hall meetings, we had customer calls on a weekly basis where we could have hundreds of customers on a conference call. Uh, we were just explaining the vision, explaining the logic and the strategy that we're going with. And I think when people truly feel they're getting transparency and they're getting the straight goods, so to speak, um, I think there's a high likelihood that they can find a way to support you. Got it, got it. And when I hear somebody kind of making a pivot from 
you know, some physical business to a more of a digital side. You know, some people might take that as an implication that you're abandoning the physical side. Um, but in, in this case, you know, the physical auction side has been, you know, really successful over, over, over a fairly long period of time. So I'm wondering, like, what are the key elements to the physical side that that of, of your success? And then how do you think those can help um, continue to propel the company into the future? Well, you know, I start with saying, and I want to be very clear, we're a digital company. We want to be a digital company and we will continue to be a digital company, but we also have some great physical assets that we think will continue to complement and add to the digital businesses that we do and that we operate. And if I could give you an example, the best example that I think of is I think about Amazon. And if you think about Amazon, Amazon is a digital company. Every interaction that you can have with Amazon is a digital interaction. Yet, if you look at that company behind that platform, underneath that platform is a massive infrastructure of warehouses and buildings that really facilitate the inventory, the logistics, the customer service. Um, and that's the way I think about our business. I think about our business that we want to be this digital company, but we also want to maintain those physical assets to be able to enhance what we do on a digital basis, if that makes sense. No, it's funny. I, where I thought you were going to go with that is Amazon buying Whole Foods, because that was a that was, I think, a shock where everyone was like thinking Amazon, obviously they have physical infrastructure when it comes to warehouses, but now they're owning a consumer facing um, retail business. And so, I mean, how much of how much of that of that is true also where you want to own the customer and wherever the customer wants to be, whether that's a physical auction, whether it's, you know, a dealer to dealer app, like talk, talk to a little bit about that as well. Yeah, you know, I think that's a very good point you make is, you know, um, we, we use the phrase, uh, first of all, we want to listen to our customers and we want to meet our customers where they want to meet and we want to do business the way they want to do business. Uh, but we also want to bring them along on our digital journey, but at a pace that they're comfortable with. So, you know, I would say to you that although we say we've gone 100% digital, uh, are there some customers that still want to use physical auctions? There are some customers that want to use physical auctions. And our job is to demonstrate to them the benefits of using a digital format and what that can do for them. And you know what, as they say, old habits die hard and it just takes time to bring them around. One of the stats I'll give you is during COVID, we signed up over 20,000 dealers in those first three months that had never done a digital transaction previous to COVID. So I think that in itself speaks to dealers willingness to try new things to some degree. And I don't know if that represents what percent that represents, but now we just have to bring the balance of I'll call the non-believers on. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, CoStreet rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. 
Tiki's changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tiki then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts the transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. I think that that is a great segue to my next question because it appears to me um, and, and us as, as shareholders that really the space that is kind of being most disrupted by digital competitors and, and, and change in business model is the dealer to dealer space where, you know, a dealer used to take a car to an auction and now maybe it's much more efficient for, for someone to, to put that inventory on an app and, and, and sell it that way. So maybe talk a little bit um, about your your journey in terms of being going from more physical focus to digitally focused on the DDD space specifically, and you know the, the move that you made with Backlot to become a real player in the in the digital dealer to dealer space. Yeah, so I'll take you back to before Backlot, um, which was more recent. I'll take you back to 2013. We acquired a Canadian company called TradeRev which was a dealer to dealer platform. And I, I've told this story many, many times, but I was sitting in a management meeting uh, in Chicago. I'll tell you, it was December 5th, 2013 at 2.10 in the afternoon. Be very specific, right? And somebody mentions this company to me called TradeRev. And I said, well, what do they do? And it's this dealer to dealer app and they transact. And this is basically the way it works. And, you know, uh, quite frankly, I'm a former dealer um, and have bought and sold a lot of vehicles, wholesale a lot of vehicles. And it like it hit me. It hit me. My God, where has this been? That's exactly what this industry needs. And I thought back to my days in the automobile business when I was wholesaling cars. And I thought, if I had had a platform like this, how much more business could I have done? Uh, how, many more new, how, how many more new cars could I have sold? How many more trade-ins could I have taken? And how much more gross profit could I have made if I'd had access to a platform like this? And I said, stop the meeting. And we stopped the meeting and took a break. And I asked our Canadian leadership team at that time, I said, I want you to phone the owner of this company right now and tell them that we want a meeting with them. And uh, that took place. And within 90 days, we closed the deal and bought the company. Uh, that's the vision that I seen for, uh, for this dealer to dealer space. And so we continue in, in the dealer to dealer space. And quite frankly, it took us a while to get it right. And over the course of time, uh, we also identified backlot cars as a strong growing player in this space. 
we like Backlot. Their business model was a little bit different than us. Um, their days to sell was a little bit different. Their go-to-market strategy was a little bit different. Um, but the thing that we we're most impressed with, we we're most impressed with the management team. These were young entrepreneurs that grew up in the business. They really knew the business, understood the business. We felt we could bring them into the company and that they could lead the dealer to dealer space. So we basically combined Backlot and TradeRev in the United States. We maintained that on the Backlot platform in Canada, we still run the TradeRev platform. Uh, and now we've really positioned ourselves to take a leadership position in this dealer to dealer space, uh, both here in Canada and the US. So what's interesting about the dealer to dealer space is, you know, call it 14, 15 million cars in the US are, are moving dealer to dealer. Um, and, and that seems like a really large total addressable market for you and, and the competitors in that space. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, disruption is such a overused and probably, you know, you know, over, you know, maybe overemphasized term these days, because everything, you know, is some in, in some capacity is facing some kind of disruption, I guess. But I'm interested, you know, there's a very well-known company that that really gained a lot of share in this space, in the dealer-to-dealer -dealer space over the last few years. I'm wondering if you've learned any lessons about defending your turf as a company that's kind of an incumbent and a legacy company that's also building a dealer-to-dealer -dealer digital space or a dealer business. Um, any thoughts there on, on, you know, kind of defending against the, the upstart? Absolutely. You know, first and foremost, you know, don't be too proud uh, and don't get too comfortable uh, and think that you're you're going to maintain your position uh, just by the status quo. Um, and you better disrupt yourself and you can disrupt yourself or you can let somebody else disrupt you. And at the end of the day, you can end up uh, paying a lot more to get to where you want to be. Um, so, you know, we've built a lot of techno uh, technologies over the year, over the years that has uh, proved out very, very well. Um, but on the other hand, we bought a lot of technology and a lot of platforms as well. And we're not proud of who built it or where it came from. Um, we just want it. We want it to work and we want to grow and to win share. And I think that we did that with Backlot Cars. Uh, backlot really enhanced our dealer dealer space. There's no question um, there was a gap uh, between number one and number two in the industry. Um, we felt that uh, we felt that we uh, had the right to win here, and we felt that we uh, could have the leadership position. Um, and acquiring Backlot really accelerated us in that leadership or getting towards that leadership uh, position. That's a great lead into my next question because you know there's always this dynamic when you're looking at M&A, should we buy it or build it, right? Like, do we have the internal capabilities to build this internally or should we go out and acquire it? So I'm interested um, how you thought about as you're looking at, at, you were looking at the trade red business and you spent a fair amount of money trying to develop that I'm interested in what the thought process looked like of we can either build, you know, we can build in similar capabilities to what Backlot is offering internally versus just going out and acquiring them. How did that work? 
Well, I think it come down to, you know, time, time and money. Uh, I felt that we didn't have enough time. Uh, and, you know, we could probably find enough money, but it was probably going to be a lot more expensive trying to do it on our own. Here we had a company with a proven management team, uh, a great platform, great, go uh, I'm repeating, forgive me, but great go-to-market strategy. Um, and, they were, and they were the fastest growing. A backlot at the time, if you took the three or four major players in this market, backlot was the fastest growing and was acquiring the most share. And that's a company that I want to be with. And I felt that my chances of catching up and getting into that leadership position would be, I'd have a much more uh, greater opportunity for success uh, by acquiring Backlot than by trying to do it on our own. And I think you have to know, um, you have to know and you have to, you have to be committed to, um, to being able to recognize when somebody else has got a better mousetrap and that you've got to be willing to pay what you need to pay to own it because as i often say you only get one chance to buy many of these companies and you don't want to miss those opportunities that's a it's an interesting way you put that because you would think you know you basically you know, to some degree have grown up in the physical used car space. You've been at this company for almost 30 years. Um, you know, they, they talk about you when you, we talk to experts in this, this field, they talk to, they talk about you as if you were a legend. Um, and so it's interesting to me that you would be able be so willing to, you know, a pivot to digital and two record, you know, as opposed to resting on, Oh, we have this great position in physical, um, you know, maybe we, and, and we have trade rev, maybe we don't need to buy, you know, backlot. That's, a, that's a really, um, you know, that was a bold move. What do you think, you know, what part of your, either your, your history or your career or the way you follow this industry allowed you to be able to move that quickly? You know, Ben, I think, first of all, thank you. I'll take that compliment. I'll tell you, I have a good PR guy that gets all that good stuff out there on me, but, uh, um, you know, I think one of the, um, I'll just call it one of the best opportunities I had to position myself in this business was I went right into the retail car business, uh, right out of college. And I spent time selling cars and then moving through the management chairs within the dealership. I ended up owning and operating dealerships and I really believe that I learned this business right from, from a rookie uh, that had never been in the business and worked my way through the business and working my way through management. Um, and I worked for a very progressive dealer who was a great mentor and a great teacher. Um, and I learned one thing that, you know, if you are willing to listen to others and understand others and look at others' point of view um, and be willing to 
change to take on change. I love change. You know, you you often hear that people are very resistant to change. Uh, my my life has been about change. Uh, you know, not only and change in every aspect of my life. I love it, right? And you know, even though I don't have a strong technology background, which we'll talk about, uh, I could see what technology could do. I could see the outcome of what technology could do, and that's what I was focused on. I was focused on. Okay, I don't need to know how every button works, right? But what's the outcome going to be here? What's my opportunity? What can I do with this technology? And I think that that's my mindset. And it's my mindset right up through COVID and going beyond COVID. And as we transform the industry and as the next generation of leadership comes into the business, um, it's being willing to adapt and try new things. You talk about your whole life of being about change. Uh, there was all, you know, we, we talked about this uh, in the lead in, but um, there is in, in April, you decided to step back from being CEO um, to being the executive chairman. So uh, under the, the heading of change, how did you know that this was the right time to pass the torch? You know, I decided one of my major responsibilities, as you would know, is succession and planning on succession for the entire company, not only for me as the CEO, but for all the senior leaders of this company. Um, and I think that's a critical responsibility. And I had identified Peter very, very early. Um, as you know, we bought Peter's company open lane in 2011. Um, I got to work with Peter uh, over the years, uh, worked very, very closely with him. A tremendous respect for Peter. Um, I've been quoted as saying, and I'll say it again, is I believe Peter Kelly is the best digital mind in our company. And I believe that he may be the best digital mind in our entire industry. And I know and recognize uh, uh, my own skill sets. I think you have to be self-aware. Um, and I know that Peter's got a skill set that fits the future of this company better than me at this point in time. Um, I think if you look at Peter's skill set, his um, vision for technology, his experience, um, his just total understanding of uh, of his belief and his commitment to digital. Um, he was the right guy for the job. He's a, he's a proven leader. Um, and I felt that in terms of succession, I felt that I couldn't have, I don't mean to be boastful here, but I couldn't have identified a better successor. And it's something that it's something that I feel really good about. I feel good for Peter and I feel good for the company that we've got this company in good hands. Yeah, I and mean, I think we've been we've been really impressed with, with with Peter and his his cadence as well. So that's 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 been really um, heartening as, as shareholders. But but staying on the topic of change, 
I'm always really interested in about in when it comes to the evolution of industries. And so you you've watched the the, the the car auction world develop over the last 30 years. I'm interested in um, is is this digital disruption and technology the biggest change that you've seen, or have there been other big shifts and 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 changes in the customers' demands and needs over time? I think about it. And, you know, I have seen a lot of change and I could point to a lot of different things, but when you combine uh, digital transformation with COVID, I think that takes first place in terms of just massive, massive change and, and quick and how fast it happened. And then, quite frankly, how successful we were in being able to do this in such a tight time frame, And, you know, again, I may have said it if I did, forgive me, but it's really amazing what people are capable of when their back is to the wall. And uh, I saw that firsthand. We lived it firsthand. And um, I consider myself a very optimistic person. Uh, you know, I'm always in a go mode and pretty enthusiastic about about the road ahead uh, and what I can do and what I think I can do. Um, I think in some ways, if I'm tr truly transparent, I think I surprised myself. Uh, I surprised myself with how we were able to manage through this time period. And we're not out of it yet and continue to manage through this time period. I could see this was a big change for a lot of people and kind of a probably a tough time, you know, for certain people in certain roles. How do you how do you infuse that optimism and keep people motivated? I mean, we talked a little bit about communications, but but more so on the how do you infuse that Jim Hallett optimism in the rest of your company, starting with obviously the top management, but even people who are you know, you know, working at physical auctions. How do you how do you keep them excited about going to work every day? Yeah, you know, I'll use an overused phrase: the, you know, the the speed of the the speed of the boss is the speed of the gang, and I think it starts by just trying to be a good example to everybody every day. Uh, you know, it's not about wearing a CEO title or having some name plaque on the door or having a having a reserved parking spot. Uh, it's about coming to work and demonstrating how passionate you are about this business, how much you care, um, and how much you're willing to do. Um, I have a quote that I often use with our employees, uh, and they can repeat it to you. If you were to ask one of them, I said, how far would you go for one more car? And that's kind of the attitude is, you know, those living examples of what would you do for one more car? What would you do for one more customer? Um, and how far would you go? Um, and to do it with a smile on your face and do it with energy and enthusiasm. Um, there's no question that, you know, I think it's very important. I can't walk down the hall or get on an elevator or go anywhere in the building without speaking to people. 
I never look at my shoe tops. I'm always looking at people and looking them in the eye and ask them how their day is and how things are. And, you know, I think it's just, it's just being human and it's not getting caught up in your own press, right? Not getting caught up in your own importance and not making it about you, but making it about them and making them feel that they're engaged in the business, that you are welcoming their input, you're feeling their contribution. Uh, and there's, there's a great culture here and we're going to have fun and we're going to work hard and we're going to be successful. Excuse me. We're going to be successful. Uh, and it's not just words, but it's demonstrating those values day in and day out. I think that really makes the difference. And, you know, the one thing that I am proud of is I do feel that I have very high engagement with the employees. And it's and it's genuine, and they feel it is. Under the heading of how far you'll go for uh, for the next car, after buying cars on the web in 2019, Car now has a European business. Um, so you're traveling uh, to to Europe now to to sell cars. Um, so I've always wondered about the success rate of companies that were traditionally very U.S. focused or North America focused, and then they move into new markets. Can you talk about how that deal came about, um, what the growth strategy is, and how you see that opportunity um, outside the U.S.? Yeah. So going back to part of your uh, question at the outset is U.S. people, Canadian people need to keep their butts in the U.S. and Canada and run U.S. and Canada businesses. And when you go into international markets, you need to go with local people that understand local business, local culture. Uh, as I like to say, they understand business rules and how business gets done in that culture. Uh, and I think that's what we've done with Cars on the Web, which is now called Odessa Europe. Um, all the people are local. Um, and they have all the attributes that I spoke about along with experience in the business. Um, and you allow them to run the business. Um, and you don't try to micromanage it by parachuting a bunch of North Americans into that culture. And we do have certainly oversight uh, here in North America over that business, that we check in and report on that business, that makes sure that business is in good shape and in good order and is is being supported uh whether through resources or capital uh, um but really allow that business to run and um that business has done well for us if you think about it the car park in europe is equivalent to the size of the car park here in north america and in some cases uh you know off lease vehicles is much more prevalent in many of the European countries than what it is here in North America. Uh, so it's a massive opportunity. And uh, I tell you, we're just in our infancy and we're seeing good, good growth in that business. And I think there's much, much more to come uh, as we continue to execute uh, on the growth strategy that we put in place internationally. And then I guess the other thing I just mentioned, it's prioritizing and finding that balance. How do you support that business 
and support the initiatives that you have going on here in North America, uh, knowing that there's a big body of water that lays between us, uh, they all have to get, make sure they're getting the, the support and the love that they need to be able to be successful. But I think key talent and key and local leadership uh, is critical to us being successful in any international market. I think you've kind of answered this, but if I was to play devil's advocate for with you a, a little bit as a shareholder, you know, the U.S. market is very dynamic and there's a lot of change and there's new competitors popping up. How do you avoid, aside from just letting, you know, that the European team run on its own, how do you avoid, you know, that large opportunity in Europe distract you from really defending and growing your core business in North America? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that we need to continue to grow. And this is a big opportunity. And I don't want people in North America getting distracted uh, if we call this the core, the core business. Um, you know, and so I think I am repeating a little bit. I do want that local talent to run that business. Uh, I don't want them to be distracted with what's going on in North America, nor do I want North America to be distracted with what's going on in Europe. But at the end of the day, when we put it together, um, I want to see a good outcome for all constituents. Got it. We've talked a lot about people, but I'm interested in, in, in terms of um, talent and talent acquisition, um, given, given the, the, the state of the current company. So, um, this company is located in Carmel, Indiana. Um, is it, is it, are you finding a situation where it's hard to find software engineers and digitally savvy people in Indiana and you have to hire in other areas? How are you thinking about that? Especially, you know, just given the war for talent we're seeing in the technology space. Yeah. Well, let me say Indiana, uh, how about the world? Um, talent's hard to come by. Um, there's no question, you know, as you look at talent, uh, especially in the digital um, technology space, um, there's high demand, there's a lot of opportunities, and it's, 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 it's tough. Indiana actually has been a pretty good little hotbed for technology talent over the years. We've got some great schools here that turn out some great talent uh, if we can keep them here. Um, but, you know, talent worldwide is difficult to get. Um, and it's being able to get not only get that talent, but to be able to retain that talent. And it's not all about money. You know, the I would tell you that people coming into the workforce today, the younger generation, um, you know, what they're looking for out of a company and what they're expecting might be very, very different than my generation or the generation ahead of them. Um, and it's not just about who can pay the most, but I think it's about where can you find a culture that you really enjoy being part of? Where can you find a business that is fun and exciting and provides opportunity? and that people can get excited about it. Listen, I often say, how much more fun could you have than working with 
a hundred thousand different car dealers. Now that's <laughs> that's that's got to be lots of fun. Um, and you know, and I think people people want to feel that they're making a contribution. They want to feel that their contribution matters, and they want to feel that you're listening to them and that they're engaged. They want to know that you're not only engaged at work, but they want to know that you're engaged in the community. They want to know that you're engaged in charitable initiatives, uh, that you're a good corporate citizen, uh, that you work for a company that's well respected within your city limits or within the geographic area. Um, so I've, I've said a lot there, but I think it's about creating that kind of atmosphere that really attracts people is to, boy, this seems like a company I really, really want to work for versus, eh, you know, this company, they're paying well, but they, they might seem a little bit stodgy or might not seem like they're, they're interested in anything more than the job itself. You mentioned the fun of working with uh, all the hundreds of thousands of car dealers. The, I think the joke in this industry is that, you know, the, the individual dealer is like the slowest moving creature ever in terms of technology adoption. So I'm, I'm interested how you've thought, COVID aside, because clearly that accelerated that, but there's still probably people who want to do things the same way they've always done it. How do you help your customers along the digital journey you know, to benefit you and the whole in industry to a maybe, you know, maybe a more efficient model and maybe a model where you don't have to run cars anymore and, and people, you know, people are not going to get injured. How do you help your customers along that journey? You know, I think the biggest thing is to meet them on their turf, is to actually go and visit them at their place of business. And first of all, thank them for their business and thank them for the way that they want to do business and to understand and be empathetic with how they think and how they feel about how they conduct business. But then also to be able to share with them, you know, there are a couple of products that I'd like to show you. There are a couple of alternatives. I'm not asking you to change all your business today or convert all your business today but maybe if you're selling 10 cars a week, what if we were to take two of them? And what if we were to put two of them on the platform? And then what if we could see what those results look like and compared to the results that is going on maybe in the traditional, the physical auction? And what if we could show you data on cars like yours and what they're selling for at auction? And what if we could show you how easy it is to operate this computer? I mean, some of these people don't even have a computer in their office. What if we could get you set up with technology? What if we could have someone come in and train your people how to go online and buy cars? Let's sit here and look at a car right now. Let's post a car right now. Let's see how quick and easy it is to take photos, how quick and easy it is to post a car, and how quick and easy it is to buy or sell a car. And, to, and that is done one customer at a time. That's not done across the board with 100,000 dealers. It's really taken the time. And I'll tell you where I think we've done a really, really good job with that. I think we've done a really good job with Backlot Cars, Trade Rev, Open Lane, all those platforms. I think our people have done a good job of connecting with the dealer. And, you know, the last thing a dealer wants to hear, and I can tell you, because I was one, 
the last thing a dealer wants to hear is don't come in and tell me that I'm a dinosaur. Don't come in and tell me that, for lack of a better word, that I'm not up with the most current way of doing business because that would be dead on arrival. I think it's, it's just bringing that dealer along with you and never, never pushing it without his consent or her consent of, I'll give that a try. And more often than not, if I said to a dealer, listen, you got 10 cars, can we post one or two of those on a platform? And that dealer, you built a relationship with that dealer, he's not gonna say no. Uh, and they're gonna give it a try. And you know, once you are able to demonstrate a transaction and have success with that transaction, then you're more apt to try it again. And as you try it again and continue to have success, then you're more likely to see you continue to be converted to that new platform. And we've, we've seen a lot of that with the platforms that we have. So this podcast is called Compounders. And when I think about a stock that, that compounds over a long period of time, you know, often companies have moats around them. And this company, I think, had, had over the long history, had had a couple moats. One, you mentioned those dealer relationships. Secondly, physical auctions. You know, there's no land to build another large auction in, in LA. So that's a nice, nice moat against competition. How do you feel about operating in an you know kind of maybe in a in a digital world where the mode is not quite as obvious where the the barriers to entry are lower is that do you have to be do you have to act different strategically i'm interested to hear you know you you've, you've enjoyed this historical moat and it's just it may be not the future may not be quite as robust how do you how do you approach that well i think the thing that you don't want to underestimate there is the value of that real estate and the value of those brick and mortar facilities. You know, I will still tell you in the digital world, uh, the complements of a brick and mortar and the acreage to go with it is a very critical asset that a lot of digital companies don't have. And that's why I think we're very well positioned because it's not just about buying or selling a vehicle. Uh, and transacting a vehicle, but it's about the other things that we do. It's about the other services that we provide. It's the transportation, the check-in, the inspections, the photos, the reconditioning, the paint and body, right? Uh, you know, all the additional services that you're doing to those vehicles that take place to enhance the value of those vehicles. Um, you know, you spoke about one of our competitors in the D to D space in the dealer to dealer space, that competitor has none of these facilities can provide none of these services. And then you take that and you couple it with our buyer base. Our buyer base is, I, I you know, I'm always careful with this, but our buyer base is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 unique buyers. Uh, and Quite frankly, there's only one other company in the world that has that, right? Um, and it's not that competitor, uh, right? But what I'm saying is you take our buyer base, you take all of our ancillary services, you take our real estate, our brick and mortar, and you put that, and on top of that, you lay this beautiful platform over it, 
you've got a winner. Uh, you've got something that is not replicated in the industry. Yeah, I think I think we are firm believers that hybrid works. And I think going back to our Amazon example of physical and digital, I think I think there are numerous other examples where, where that's where, where that's proven to be the case. So as we as we zoom out a little bit, um, you know, you've you've been in this industry a long time. You started as a dealer. You've had just such a wealth of experience, you know, in in the auto world. What do you think you'd like for people to think of as your legacy at car? Like what if, you know, when people talk about the Jim Hallett era, what, what kind of elements would you want people to highlight? You know, Ben, I'm not really focused on my legacy. I don't really think it's about me. Um, I really, it's really about our people and it's about this company and it's about where we're going and that next generation. Uh, you know, if anything, I just like, I, I, you know, not so much a legacy, but I'd like people to think, boy, Jim Hallett showed up every, he showed up every day. He was enthusiastic and he had a lot of fun. Uh, but in terms of legacy, that's not real important to me. What's real important to me is what can I do to position this company for for successes as, as I as I wind it up here um, and really support Peter and the senior leadership team at Carr uh, because I know not hyperbole and and not puffing but I know how good this company is and I know what a jewel we have and I know what that jewel can look like. And I know it's going to take six or 12 months to get back to where things seem more normal and volumes are starting to come back and the, the chip shortage is taken care of and the lease cars are returning and residual values are falling back, are, are, are back in line, uh, that those cars are now coming to, coming to auction platforms rather than being sold to the end consumer. Uh, you know, I think there's a six to 12 month period, but I know how good this company is. I know how good the management team is. And I know how successful we can be, especially, especially as we think about all of the moves we've made as a result of COVID to restructure our workforce, to right size the company, to take costs out of the company, to really become efficient and improve our processes and enhance what we do through data and through technology, this company is on a path to victory. You talk about this company being trying to be adaptable and you yourself being really um, accepting of change. Um, and, and then you talk also about you know, data and, and, and becoming better through data. What are some things that you've had to rethink or change your position on over the years about this industry. Anything that you would have said maybe 15 years ago, I think it's going to be X and it turned out to be Y. And, and any lessons you can you can highlight there? Yeah. You know, Ben, I think back to my first auction in Canada in 1990. 
we hand wrote all of our contracts. <laughs> I don't think we had a computer in the building. Um, <clears throat> so I've seen a lot of change, but I think that, I think there's a couple of things that I could talk about. There's no question. The biggest change is the one we've been discussing. This whole COVID and this digital transformation and the platforms and the, the auction of the future, as I like to call it, I think has, has been massive. I think we've really had to think a lot about our people, about our talent uh, and our recruitment and not only recruiting them, but retaining them and how we build that culture and how we continue to keep that entrepreneurial spirit in this company. You know, I pride myself on being an entrepreneur if I could. Uh, I think we have a lot of other entrepreneurial minds in the company. I wanna continue to make sure we don't forget where we came from and keep that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I wanna recognize that we are a big company, but I wanna act small. I want to act like a small company um, and I want to move forward with innovation and technology because nobody's going to stop innovation. It's a powerful force and we've seen it happen. We've talked about Amazon, talk about what Carvana is doing, talk about what car about um, the uh, God, I'm going blank, um, uh, CarMax. Uh, talk about what they've done. You take a look at these companies and you see what they've been able to do. Uh, you can't stand in the way of that. Um, and I think that I think that we'll continue to see technology and data continue to drive this business more and more. Data, you mentioned data, um, or I mentioned it. Um, the power of data and how you can use that data and how you can use it uh, with your customers and to help your customers and to build your business. Um, you know, that's been a big area of focus for us as well. So, but in my career, I've not seen anything as dramatic as what's happened through this whole COVID period. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, having your physical oxygen shut down for the first time in the history of the company was, was a big shift. Um, so I, I think we'll wind up here with with my favorite question um, and the one we we close all interviews and discussions with. So, what do you think? Clearly, there's a dynamic market, and the world is your world has changed really quickly. But what do you, you say? What would you say are the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspects of this company that you know someone? reading your financial statements or going to your website for the first time wouldn't really recognize? Great question. You know, I think it's really about the scale of this business, the magnitude of this business, and what a huge part of the automotive ecosystem that we represent. Um, you know, you think about it, just here in North America, over 40 million used car transactions on an annual basis. And you know, with that, start to think about the life cycle of a car. You know, manufacturer builds a new car, ships it to a dealer, dealer sells it to a retail customer, retail customer trades in a car, trade that trade in 
goes to a platform or goes to a physical auction, that gets resold to an independent dealer. That independent dealer reconditions the car, puts it back on the road to another retail customer. That customer that, <laughs> that now bought that new car is trading in that used car several years later and the whole cycle starts over again. And I think they just don't know, understand how that whole ecosystem works and just the sheer size of it and the number of dealers that we support. Uh, independent dealers and franchise dealers. You know, I said somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 different dealers. Uh, and how we are able to take what I call all of this chaos and organize it into a very professional uh, and I think uh, a very professional and disciplined organized business. I'll add just one note there, and maybe you can comment on it that, you know, I think when a common misunderstanding we find when we talk to other people about this is that not every car sold by, you know, either a dealer or a captive insurance company or a captive finance company or fleet can be sold by using an app. There's, you know, there, there's services that need to be on top of it, or, you know, it, it, there's, there's just reasons why it's really hard to do everything digitally. Is that, is that a fair understanding of, of, you know, what the, the market looks like if you really zoom in on, on an individual transaction? Absolutely. There's no, there's no two individual transactions that are the same to your point. And every vehicle is going to require something different. Um, and it's not cookie cutter. Uh, and, you know, we find a way, we find a way to make each car as we like to say, stand as tall as it can possibly stand, uh, getting ready uh, for the next customer, you know, and going and going, going beyond. So uh, it's, it's a fascinating business. And, you know, most people, not only the people that think they know us, no disrespect, but really to understand this business uh, takes takes some effort and some research and some getting out there and really and truly becoming a student of the business. Well, I will say that um, I follow this company for probably close to seven years now, and um, I still learn something new every time I listen to an expert call or I talk to your CFO. Um, because there's just a lot of nuance in this market that you just can't paint with a, with a broad brush. Um, and with that, uh, thank you so much for this time. This has been a great, you know, masterclass on everything, you know, auto, uh, used auto. Um, and so thank you again for this. And, and, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, man. I enjoyed being with you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.